If I said to God, God, what are your top three priorities for me as a Christian? I'm not sure I would have guessed that those would have been his answers. I think he would have said, read the Bible, pray, go to church, join a life group. And God isn't saying don't do those things. In fact, he's saying that if you want to walk humbly with him in the fellowship of all people's church, that's just what you should be doing. But the surprise comes with the other two things that are right there on God's top three. Act justly, love mercy. Let's look first at acting justly. The first point to note is it's about action. You can't just be just. You can't just think about justice. And even if you can think about justice, God says that's not enough. Justice is something you've got to do. But what is justice? Let me give you a couple of definitions. Justice has to do with the exercise of power and authority according to God's standards of holiness and moral excellence. Justice is about how we use the power and the authority that we have. Another definition, justice is about right relationships, about regulating imbalances of power in pursuit of fairness. Now, I know I'm a lawyer, and I'm tying things up in words, so I'm going to unpack it. What kind of authority? What kind of power? Well, let's look. The first possibility is physical power physical authority. Some of us are physically stronger than others. Parents, you're probably physically stronger than your children, at least while they're young. Husbands, many of you are stronger than your wives. And that's without even getting into groups of people where physical strength is far more tangible. What do we do with that? What do we do with the fact, maybe at school, at college, around, what do we do with that strength? The next one is moral power or moral authority. Many of you have moral authority because you're respected in your homes, you're respected in your workplaces, you have integrity, and therefore people who hear you listen to what you say. They look to you as an example. How are you using that, that authority, that influence that you have? What about financial? Many of us here are relatively at least wealthy. We could at the very least point to several million people within just a few miles of here who we are richer than. We have financial power. What are we doing with that? Social power. We have positions in society. We're viewed by others in our social network with high regard. What do we do with that reputation? And finally, families. Families have all kinds of authority structures going on. Some people decide who, what, what we get, what get to eat. Some people decide where we get to go on holiday. All kinds of structures. But how do we operate? How do we use the influence that we have from the big issues to the small issues? Because acting justly, doing justice, is about using whatever power we've got, whatever authority we have, it's looking at our sphere of influence, whatever that is, and using what we have. Use your voice. Use your vote. Use your money. Use your opinions. Use your physical strength. What are you going to exert yourself to do? What are you going to choose to do? That's acting justly. 
The next one is mercy. And let's look at a definition of mercy. Mercy is compassionate treatment. The alleviation of distress, especially of those under one's power. And again, just like justice, it doesn't exist in isolation. It's all about human relationships. It's all about how we use that power, how we use that authority, how we use that influence. Are we using it to be compassionate? Is that what we're spending our lives doing? Are we looking actively to alleviate the distress of others? Do we love mercy? Or as one translation puts it, is it our first concern in all we do? Obviously, one question to ask is, well, who's distress? You know, if we're meant to alleviate distress, who is it? Well, it could be anyone within your sphere of influence. Remember what happened when another lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus told him a story that we all know, the story of the Good Samaritan. And the answer to that question didn't turn out to be his neighbor, as in the person who lived next to him. It wasn't his family. It wasn't his uncle. It wasn't even the people in his neighborhood or just the person at work. It turned out to be a person who he just passed on the road. It turned out to be somebody, not who he'd ever thought of helping before, but someone he could help if he really wanted to. And so when we're called to act justly, when we're called to love mercy, our vision has to be huge. We can't close our eyes. If the Samaritan had closed his eyes, it would have been a very different story. But Jesus says, no. Look out. Keep your eyes open. If you're going to be compassionate, if you're going to be a person who seeks justice, you're going to be active. Well, that's the Old Testament. Let's look at the New Testament. This is a passage from Matthew 23. And in Matthew 23... Uh, Jesus was criticizing the lawyers. Um, he was saying to them, you are not practicing what you're preaching. You're all mouth and no action. And in these verses, he says this, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And there again, a three-point manifesto, an agenda, and on it, justice and mercy, along with faithfulness. I think we can rightly conclude that justice and mercy are central to the character of God to his heart and his mandate for the church. And it's crucial if we're going to understand what is social action and then get on with it. Because social action, social activity, it could mean anything. It could mean being sociable. It could mean being socialist. It could mean all manner of things. But God in his graciousness has revealed to us what he wants. He wants us to do justice and to love mercy. And this resonates with what we read about in Scripture as God interacts with his people. And so what I'd like us to do now is for you to sit back in your chairs just for a few minutes, and we're going to have a little meditation 
with some music and some scripture verses coming up. And I'd like you just to take time to read them and ask the Holy Spirit to lay them on your heart and allow yourself to respond and see what God feels, what God does. You are mercy, Jesus, you are justice. Jesus, you are worthy, that is what you are. You died alone to save me, you rose so you could raise me. You did this all to make me a chosen child of God. Worthy is the Lamb that was
social action, justice, mercy, compassion, are not things that our God is indifferent about. He's passionate about them. And we see as we read Scripture that it rouses him to love, to action, to anger, and even to hatred. In fact, it reveals to us elements of God's heart that are so raw, we rarely touch upon them. This is truly sacred ground. But it is not sacred in the sense that it's somewhere where mortals fear to tread. No, in fact, it's the opposite. Because God's heart for social action takes us not up into a temple or into some spiritual dream, but it takes us straight to the people who need help, who need justice, who need mercy, who need our compassion. I said at the beginning we need to look both um, at the scripture and then we need to look at the problem. And so we're going to turn to look at some examples of injustice. We'll look first at biblical injustice, where God has revealed to prophets and apostles um, what was going on at their time and what concerned him. So we'll start with one from Amos. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. We're told by Jesus that the poor will always be with us and we can help them anytime we like. But equally, to fail to help the poor, to treat the poor badly, is to deny them justice. And God calls his people to address that. The next one comes from Job. Men move boundary stones. They pasture flocks they have stolen. They drive away the orphan's donkey and take the widow's ox in pledge. The infant of the poor is seized for a debt. They carry the sheaves, but still go hungry. What's all this about? Well, it's about powerful people stealing other people's land and livelihood. Let's look closely at the depth of evil that's being revealed. The orphan obviously has no parents, so he has no form of support, but he has a donkey. And with his donkey, he can earn money by doing chores for people and carrying things around. But when he needs to borrow money from somebody, what do they take from him as collateral? His donkey. All that he has. And the same is true of the widow. She has no husband to support her, but fortunately she has an ox. And that ox can be a source of work for her, from which she can earn an income and sustain herself. But when she needs to borrow money, it's taken away from her, and she's left with nothing. Now, we often think of these types of injustice as biblical injustice. We speak of things being of biblical proportions. But let's move to the next one. The infant of the poor is seized for a debt. We saw this on Friday just outside Bangalore. My team took up a case which is not just like this, it is this. An eight-year-old boy, whom I will call Nagaraj, had been kidnapped by a rock quarry owner. And he was kidnapped because his father, 
who had been a bonded laborer, had escaped. And the owner didn't like him escaping and said he still owed him money. And so what did he do? He kidnapped the boy. Fortunately, my team got to hear about it and bravely they went on Friday with the government and the police and they rescued him. Nagaraj was an infant of the poor seized for a debt. So before we start trying to distance biblical injustice from what we see today, let's think again. Because it's not just a case of the lines being blurred. In fact, it's just a continuation. We're facing today exactly what the Lord was talking about when he revealed himself through the prophet Job. Now let's look at one from the New Testament, from James. The wages you fail to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Underpaying workers, James told Jesus' followers, was a problem that God was aware of and he wanted to deal with. And he's not pleased with it. And he's not pleased with it today either. And at IJM we see it all the time. But it's not confined to brick kilns, rock quarries, rice mills, or the construction industry. It reaches right into people's homes, where they employ children for just a few rupees a month. There's no way that they can eat, sleep, or even go to school on that kind of money. And their wages are crying out. And the Lord hears. You see, today, there is injustice of biblical proportions. Today, millions of people are enslaved. The best estimate is that there are 27 million slaves in the world today. And the sad fact is that many of them are in India in bonded labor. Millions are imprisoned. In poor countries, between 60 and 85% of people in prison have never been charged and are there illegally. Millions are beaten by the police. A recent survey by the World Bank revealed that in poor countries, the police are a source of insecurity for the poor, not security. They're seen as a threat. Millions are raped. In poorer countries, up to 40% of girls are victims of rape or attempted rape by the age of 14. Millions are robbed. Widows, orphans, poor people live in constant fear that their land, their property will be taken from them and they will have nothing they can do about it. And millions are oppressed. By caste or other community inequality, they have no equality of opportunity and they're stifled. It's a shocking reality, and in the church, we're caught in the middle because we have this amazing revelation of God's heart, his passion for justice, his compassion, his mercy, and yet we see such evil and we see such desperation. What, what can we do? Well, the, many of us answer the question like this. It's not in my neighborhood. They're not bothering me. I don't really know them. Okay, I feel bad. But what's the good of feeling bad? 
if it's so serious, how come the last generation didn't deal with it? What can I do anyway? Or perhaps the best one, it's God's job. But none of those is the answer we're called to give because if that's our answer, the millions of people who are oppressed, who are suffering, are still going to call out, where is the God of justice and mercy today? You know, God himself asked a similar question through the prophet Ezekiel. The people of the land practice extortion and commit robbery. They oppress the poor and the needy and mistreat the alien, denying them justice. And so God said, I looked for someone who might rebuild the wall of righteousness that guards the land. I searched for someone to stand in the gap in the wall so I wouldn't have to destroy the land. God saw the problem and he saw that there was no one there. So he looked for someone. And fortunately, God didn't come up with any of those answers like the last generation or not being our neighbors. He came up with an answer that we begin to see in Psalm 12. Because of the oppression of the weak and the groaning of the needy, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. Can you hear the hope in that? Can you hear how it changes from desperation to fine words to real hope? But where is the hope? You remember we began with Micah 6.8, telling us what the Lord requires of us. We all know Micah 6.8. It's got a 6 in it and an 8 in it. But there's another verse that's got that, Isaiah 6.8. And that's where we find the answer. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And I said... Here am I. Send me. That means me. It means us. It means you. We are God's plan A. We are God's answer to this problem. If there is a gap between the God of love, of compassion, of justice and mercy, and what we see on the earth, we are called to stand in that gap. It's our work and God doesn't gently request it of us. We're told in Micah, he requires it of us. When the vulnerable, the poor, the oppressed ask, where is the God of social action, the God of justice and mercy? We can say, here he is, he sent me. I once gave uh, a presentation similar to this a few years ago, and a woman came up to me afterwards and said, I don't know. There are global issues here that require the intervention of the United Nations. There are economic problems that require all of the banks in all the world to get together to do anything meaningful about it. I go into my shops and I find products that I know are made by child laborers and I know there are sex slaves in this city. What can I do? And to my shame, I didn't know how to answer her. What I should have said was, you're the answer. but what to do? How? It's all very well having the theory, but what do we actually do? I'm afraid that my answer for you is, 
I don't know. I know that God has called me, and I know what he's called me to. And so the only thing I can say with moderate certainty this morning is that God has not called you to do my job, at least not this week, because I'm going to do it. There's just no easy answer to this question. It's not as simple as making a donation, signing up to an email list. Jesus told us that the problem is that the laborers are few. The short answer is God wants you, heart, mind, body, and soul. He wants you to seek him earnestly and to follow wherever he leads you into schools, into slums, into corporate lobbying, into political action, crisis counseling, support, AIDS clinics, advice centers, orphanages. Maybe he's just calling you to your place of work to ask, are you paying your laborers fairly? But that's going to leave you floundering in confusion, and I know it is. So I have an action plan. Let's go through it. The first point is this. Pay attention. Gain knowledge. We must be alive to what is happening in the world today. If we are God's hands and God's feet, we've got to know where we're walking and what we're doing. We've got to read the paper. We've got to listen to the news. We've got to open not just our physical eyes, but our spiritual eyes and see what's going on. You'll see slums, you'll see poverty, you'll see pain, and you will see suffering. And if you're like me, you'll want to shut it out because it hurts too much. But if we allow the Holy Spirit to guide our response, what safer hands could we be in? God says draw close to this. The pain will not be too much. It may feel at times like it is. But with God, we're in safe hands. And that leads to the second point. Engage and identify. Get close. Sometimes stories in the paper, stories on the TV news or on the radio can seem a long way away. How do we engage with that? How do we understand God's heart for that? Ask yourself, what if my child was the child who was the orphan living in that slum with no education? What if it was the daughter of someone in my congregation, my life group, who'd been abducted? Again, allow the Holy Spirit to guide you. Ask those difficult questions. Don't be afraid of the pain, because Jesus wasn't. He embraced it, and that's what we're called to do. And I've no doubt that will lead you on to point three, which is to pray. And I don't know about you, but when I did my study of the Bible on what God feels about this, I was surprised to read words like anger, hate, as well as love and compassion. When we pray with passion and with anger, we'll begin to identify with those feelings. We'll begin to share the Father heart of God, and it's that that will motivate us. Now, the next step might not be the natural progression, but I'd like to suggest it nonetheless. Tell stories. What I mean is, when you've seen things, when you've engaged with them, 
talk about them. Because one of the devil's great tactics with areas of social injustice is just to keep them in the dark. Bonded labor, not in my town. Domestic violence, not amongst my friends. Lack of education, no, not here. We've got it sorted. Look at our economic growth, it's 8%. But if we're going to bring these things out of the darkness into the light where we as a church can deal with them, we've got to start talking about them. Let's not be ashamed. This is not a sign of defeat. It's the beginning of the battle. Eyeing up your enemy. Understanding what you're being called to. Gaining God's passion for the people who are hurting. And bring it out into the open. Talk about it in your life groups. Discuss it with your friends. And I hope that will lead us on to what you perhaps thought was coming next which is to give our resources. And I'm not just talking about money. For many of us, that would be the easy option that kept our hands clean and kept things at a distance. God wants us to get close, to get our hands physically dirty, to go where the pain is, to meet the people face to face. That's what God did for us. One by one, he revealed himself to us in a very personal, one-on-one way. And if we are going to be God's hands and God's feet, that's what we've got to do. So give, by all means, your money, but your time, your voice, your influence, your power in whatever form it takes. Young people, maybe give your career. Maybe a glittering uh, degree as an engineer is not what God's calling you to. Maybe you need to be a social worker, a lawyer, to join the police, to sign up for government service. What is God calling you to do so that his people, his hands, his feet are in places where they can make a difference? And the final one is cross borders. Get out of your comfort zone. It's going to be very easy, and I know from my experience that it's easy to try and find something that you're comfortable with. And the Lord might well be calling you to something that is very uncomfortable. Go with it. You couldn't be going to a safer place than where God is calling you. So what will it look like for you? As I've said, I have no idea. But doesn't that make the search more exciting? I can speak from my experience. The search has led me to see things and identify things, to come across more pain, to cry more, to work harder, and to move 5,000 miles further than I ever thought I either would or could. And I am delighted to be where God has called me. But responding to God's call is not just something for me, it's for all of us, the church and social action, not just one or two people. What God wants is for us to respond with passion, with love, and with courage to do what he requires of us. And it's awesome. It's social action in the true sense that God intends, if we dare to take up the challenge. I'm just going to introduce you briefly to Esther Daniel. Um, She's the Director of Administration at IJM, and she's just going to share briefly about her testimony of how God called her. Esther. Good morning, friends. 
Um, I'm so happy to be with you this morning. Um, and I consider it a great privilege to be with each of you and to share with you what God has done in and through my life uh, till today. Um, I call it a privilege uh, not because I stand here um, because I'm special or because I have some great qualities, but I call it a privilege because I'm a fulfillment of the expression, God does not call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. He qualifies the willing. I'm Esther Daniel, as James said, and I serve as a director of administration and public relations of our office in Bangalore. I'm also the daughter of a pastor, and at an early age of eight years, I realized my need for forgiveness and accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Um, growing up in Bombay and working with my parents in their church, I saw and I heard stories of abuse, of neglect, of poverty, and evil at work. Friends, I knew my God cared, but I was yet to comprehend the intricacies and the enormous repercussions of injustice and violence. As I counseled young abused girls and helped them on their road to recovery, God began painting on my heart the picture of his heart for justice how he cared for the oppressed and helpless ones, and how he was looking for a woman or a man to stand in the gap. Having graduated as an engineer in 1998, I worked in the corporate world for nearly six years. When in 2005, I got married to Marcus Daniel and I moved to Bangalore. Here, after working for several months, God continued to show me his heart for justice and he asked me to quit my corporate job. I did. I was at home for nearly eight months. It was very difficult. Um, I, being human, I still continue to apply for jobs, and time and again, God would close the door. Uh, I went to social work concerns, and I'm like, I'm interested in social work, but God would close that door. Um, and he continued to make me wait on him for eight months. It was difficult, but through various friends, and I think definitely through divine appointments, he led me to International Justice Mission in December 2006. Founded in 1997, International Justice Mission was started by Gary Hogan, who was then a lawyer with the United States Department of Justice. Why IJM? Why was the need to start IJM? Historically, humanitarian and mission organizations would work faithfully overseas. They would bring in resources like healthcare, education, food to fulfill the needs of the poor. But these dear people, as they worked in a number of mission fields, when they were faced with violent situations, when they were faced with violent injustice by inaction by the police, they remained helpless. An extensive study that was done that across 65 organizations and spanning 40,000 overseas workers. The result was that there was an unanimous awareness of abuses of power, both by police and by those in authority. Gary Hogan, our CEO and president, then stepped in and began International Justice Mission to bring in lawyers, social workers, professional, those in 
public official positions together and to engage in this battle against injustice. Today, IJM has 14 field offices across the globe. We provide assistance and relief for victims of violent injustice, of unprosecuted rape, police brutality, illegal detention, illegal land seizure, sex trafficking of minors, and forced slavery. Our, we have four offices in India, two in the north, that is in uh, Calcutta and Mumbai, and two offices in Bangalore and Chennai. Calcutta and Mumbai work in the field of forced girl-child prostitution, and our offices in Bangalore and Chennai worked in the field of forced labor. Our mission is to protect people from violent forces of injustice. How do we do that? It is by securing their rescue and ensuring that the public justice systems work for the poor. You will ask me, what is a public justice system? And how does it work? It's very simple. If a poor man today can walk up to a police station, if he can say, sir, I have a complaint and I want to file, file it with you, and if, the, and if the complaint gets filed, he gets justice. If he can walk to a collector, if he can walk to a politician and say, sir, this is my problem, can you help me? And he's helped. That is the day when I, when I will say public justice systems actually work for the poor. And that is our long-term goal. That is our long-term vision and mission. How do we do this? We have a four-fold holistic approach. One is we ensure that the, the victims who are currently being abused receive relief. So we call that victim relief. The perpetrators who perpetrate these crimes are held accountable by the law. And victims who are, who are then rescued from these facilities are given aftercare. And structural transformation is when, as I said, one day a poor man can walk up and these public justice systems will actually work for him. In the last three years of our existence, IGM Bangalore has successfully rescued more than 200 victims from forced labor. We have 568 clients in our aftercare program and currently we handle 38 open cases. Our aftercare program has ensured that 96% of our victims do not go back into slavery. But friends, this morning I must tell you that all of this has not come easily. Quite honestly, the risk is in our face day in and day out. I just recently told my husband I hope you know and understand what God has called us and me to. I told him, my life is at risk when I do this work. My colleagues and I have been on several occasions surrounded by mobs. We have had stones hurled at us. We have been chased down roads. On some occasions, we have been deserted by government and police in the midst of a distressing and a difficult situation. But friends, we have to obey God's call. We continue to stand up, speak up, and show up on behalf of the oppressed. Isaiah 117 is not an alternative. It is a directive. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the fatherless. Provide for the widow. I can still remember June 18, 2008, with great clarity in my mind. Having received a complaint from a sub-collector of Tamil Nadu, we had approached the government official here in Bangalore to rescue 
more than 50 victims who were forced to work below the required minimum wage. They were not allowed to freely exit the facility whenever they pleased. They were not allowed to seek employment anywhere else. In fact, they were enslaved at the facility. God reserves his strongest comments for those who oppress the poor. In Proverbs 14.31, he says, He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker. Forced labor is when one person forces another man, a woman, or a child to work against their will. And how do they do this? They use violence, they use threats of violence, and many such coercive methods. And why does this happen? Because there is a, an imbalance of power. Like, as James was explaining, power and authority. There is an imbalance of power. These people either have political power, or they have financial power, social power. And they use this power to make these vulnerable and oppressed people to work against their will and in conditions they would not have otherwise conceded to. IGM brought this case before the district administration. That day, having gathered enough number of police for our protection, IGM staff and the government official headed towards the facility. The government officers started inquiring the victims, asking them about their conditions of work. Little did we know what lay ahead of us. A couple of minutes into the facility, while the government officer was still speaking, to the workers, to the laborers there. The owners of the facility rallied a huge mob of 200 men or more. The victims who were by then sent, to the, sent by the government to a bus to be seated in safety were now suddenly being pulled out of the bus by the angry mob. The owner and his men became very violent and angry. My advocate, my director of aftercare, and myself who were there in the midst of the mob. We were surrounded by them. We were threatened by them. They were asking us to leave the facility and return our victims back to us. Friends, it was almost as if these laborers were the owner's property. The Bible rightly says, then I looked again at the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of the oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. The mob got more and more angry, they got more violent, and they blocked all our roads of exit. We were closed in on all sides and we could not move. And the government seemed to have suddenly got paralyzed in the situation, and the police did not do much to contain the mob. We continued to advocate for our victims, but our pleas fell on deaf ears. Plus now my staff and I were in a dangerous situation. They separated the victims away from us, and we remained waiting in our cars for more than four hours. The owners and his men slashed at our tires. They threatened to burn down our vehicles. They waved matchsticks and kerosene cans at us. One of them even kicked my driver who had gone down to check the condition of the tire. The situation really seemed dangerous, but we continued to press on. 
we, we, we got in touch with many senior police officials and district magistrates here in Bangalore. And at that time, one of my advocates was in the city. And so with dogged advocacy and persistence, she enabled the police to let us come back to our safety. After nearly six hours of danger, of violence, and inaction by the government and police, we then returned back to the office of the government official. Unfortunately, the, situ the situation for the victims was not any better. Some of them managed to escape. Some were beaten by the owner and his men. And some were surprisingly brought back by the Tasildar. He brought back around 10 out of the 50 who were in the facility. IJM did not and could not give up. We stood, we stood in the gap. We stayed at the Tasildar's office late that night, making sure that he inquired every single victim who had whom he had taken to his office. Some of the victims, I told you, had escaped from the facility. They called us up late, late at night and said, we are on Sonso Road and we are walking away from the facility. Can you come get us? We got back in our cars. We drove back to the same streets in which we were held back and we picked up these victims and brought them to safety. The next day, we presented the entire case before the district magistrate here in Bangalore. Again, it required persistent advocacy in front of the officer to enable him to inquire all these victims. Fortunately, the district magistrate had once he had inquired them, he found that all of them were bonded and he issued release certificates to them. Today, thanks to the effort of aftercare and the rehabilitating government, all of these victims have received 20,000 rupees as a rehabilitation fund from the government. One of the victims who was rescued thus is this morning with us and he will be sharing his story with you. Who will go for me? Whom then shall I send? The smile on the face of a child, the hope in the expression of a husband and father, the desire for her child's future in the eyes of a mother, all of these at the end of the day tell us there is hope. There is hope only if we are willing to give out as five loaves and two fishes. God just needed five loaves and two fishes to feed the 5,000. If we are willing to give our five loaves and two fishes, God is able to multiply it and use us to restore to the victims of oppression the things God intended for them to have. Their lives, their liberty, their dignity, the fruits of their labor. You know, just a couple of months, I was accompanying one of my advocates um, uh, to the court to hear the, mat to hear the same case. And as we were waiting in the parking lot, in the parking area outside the court, the same owner came to attend the same hearing, of course. Um, and we just waved our hands at him and we said hello to him. And he started walking toward us. Uh, on one side, my heart was beating real fast because I don't know what he's going to do now. And we were just me and my advocate. But on the other side, I just saw a complete change in this man. Of course, I won't say he became Christian and got saved, but I, there was a definite humility in this man. He walked up to me and he said, you know, madam, how much can I run? Maybe we can run for a while, but once the law catches up with you, you can't run anymore. And that is why IJM believes in perpetrator accountability. You hold these men accountable for the crimes they do. 
And, and that, that afternoon, I just realized that this man is now going to go and tell his friends and the message is going to spread that the, there is a law that is in this land that exists to protect these oppressed. As God calls his son Jesus in Isaiah 42 to bring justice to the nations and justice to the wrong, he calls both you and me. What does he call us for? To demonstrate his righteousness on this earth. He calls us to free the captives from the prison and release those who sit in dark dungeons. It is finally a divine invitation. Friends, you were not just rescued from. You were rescued for a purpose, a promise, and God's infinite glory. Thank you. I know we're running a bit late, so I'm just going to end, if I may, with a very short story. Because it may seem to you that having quoted big numbers like 27 million slaves, millions of others caught in oppression, poverty, what good is this? The numbers are so small. Well, one day a man was walking along a beach. It was the early morning and the tide was going out. The sun was rising, it was going to be a beautiful day. But as he looked down on the sand, he saw hundreds, thousands, lack, craw of starfish who'd been washed up by the high tide and were there lying on the sand. And then an awful thought came across his mind. By the time the tide came back to wash them out to sea again, the sun would have risen to its noonday strength and they would all have died. He felt utterly hopeless as he looked up and down the beach. But he saw, down by the water's edge, a small boy who seemed to be stooping down, walking to the water, coming back and stooping down again. And he walked over to the boy and he shook his head and said, Stop. Stop. There are literally thousands of starfish here. You can't make any difference. And the boy stooped down, picked up another starfish and tossed it into the sea. And then he said to the man, I made a difference to that one. The problems are huge. But if we each play our part, if we each respond to God's call, well, you know the story of the five loaves and the two fish. All the boy was asked to bring was what he had. No more than that. It's God who does the miracles. Thank you very much for having us here this morning. Thank you. Thank you so much, James and Esther and, and your team from IJM. Let's give them a good hand once again. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Let's get our... Uh, Let's get our worship team up. Tim, if you can come up here, we're going to take some time just to respond um, to what we heard this morning. You know, many of us would say, okay, we heard the message, so what do we do now? And uh, I want to encourage you to pray and do something. You can be that little boy starting to do something small. 
Uh, many times we wait for the church to start something and, you know, maybe if, um, if All People's Church starts something, then I'll join in. Maybe I'll give some money and send the people out. And I gotta wait for the church to do something. But really, you are the church. Amen? Each one of us are the church. And uh, if you can start doing something, you pray, you, sh- you see what God will want you to do. And then you engage, you go out, you mobilize people, you get people together, and you do something. Don't wait, you know, for all people's church to start a ministry saying, now we're going to address, no, we may do that, we may not do that, I don't know. But you are the church, you are the body of Christ, you are His hands, you are His feet. So you pray and say, God, what are you calling me to do? What can I do? And God may speak to your heart and say, do this. You engage. You share with a few people around you who may be willing to form a team. You go out, do something, make a difference. Can we just rise to our feet? And I want us to take a moment just to wait upon the Lord this morning and say, God, what would you want me to do? How would you want me to respond to this call this morning? How would you want me to say yes to your call? How can I say, Lord, here I am, send me. In what way would you like me to be a part of your answer to the needs around me? Would it take some time to pray? And just between you and God. Would you just make yourself available to Him? You may not know all the answers right now. You may not know how and what and when and where. But if you can just pray and say, God, I'm willing to do something in response to what I heard this morning. That will be the beginning of a journey where God will unfold to you what you can do. But will you just say, yes, God, I'm willing to do something. I'm willing to open my eyes and see. I'm willing to hear what you hear, God. I'm willing to feel what you feel. Here I am, Lord. Show me what I can do. Father, we just pray that you look into our hearts and We pray that you'll raise up many of us, possibly all of us, to do something. To help the poor, the weak, the oppressed, the hurting, the needy. To make a difference, God, in our city, in our nation. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. To touch our hearts, to light a fire this day.
We'll be given a vision from you, a plan, a strategy. To make a difference, Father. Start our hearts up, light a fire, O oh God. Make ourselves available to you to make a difference for your kingdom. Let's close.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you and lift up His countenance on you and give you His peace. In Jesus' name, everyone say, Amen, Amen. We trust that this message was a blessing to you. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at contact at abcwo.org. Also, visit our website www.abcwo.org for additional resources. Thank you for listening and God bless you.